This is the other side of midnight. If you were to pick one issue which seems to have been uh, once relegated to the fringes of organized society, relegated to comic books, late night radio shows, science fiction novels, and has all of a sudden become mainstream, front page of the New York Times, coverage in the Washington Post, coverage on CNN, Fox News, 60 Minutes, you name it. It would be the issue of what we used to call UFOs, what we now call, what the government now refers to as UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Well, there was a fascinating story on this front this week, and it was broken by a man who has been doing yeoman's work not only in chronicling the UAP issue for a long time, but in terms of enlightening the public about what we know and what the government might know about these UAPs. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome David Beatty. He's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, his film, The Nimitz Encounters, was quite groundbreaking. We'll talk about that in a minute. David, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, it's my pleasure, uh, Frank. Appreciate you having me on to talk about this important topic. And it, it is Beatty, right? Like Warren Beatty or Ned Beatty, not Beatty? Yeah, that's right. A lot of people, uh, you know, phonetically it looks like it's Beatty, but, um, you know, it is Beatty. So thanks for asking. <laughs> it, it should make it easier to sell the film rights if uh, uh, f to any, any future publications that you have, if it's a Beatty production, I would think. Now, um, <laughs> I know a lot of our listeners, even either people that pay super close attention to this stuff or people that uh, have only a passing interest, if that, in this stuff, remember the front page of the New York Times from December of 2017 when these tic-tac-shaped objects appeared uh, to the USS Nimitz. And this was groundbreaking in terms of UAP coverage being taken seriously by mainstream news outlets. We learned in that same article and subsequently that the government had been funding this essentially UAP watching program called ATIP, and we're still getting documentation coming out about that. And uh, this is not something that the government was laughing off for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, remind folks that might not remember what exactly happened with the Nimitz encounter back in 2004 that you made the documentary about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and what you just said was probably, you know, what kind of shook me up into looking at this topic again, because I hadn't been, um, you know, researching UFO topics for quite the time. But when that article broke, it kind of kick-started my interest once again, and as I was a, a MUFON field investigator back in the early 90s, I had just kind of uh, drifted away from the topic for quite the time and developed my career in television. But when I saw that, um, you know, article, I started researching it and uh, looking into the background of it. We found another article that had been written in a fighter um, trade magazine that was much more in-depth um, by a former fighter pilot named Paco Chirichi, in the magazine Fighter Sweep, and this had been published in 2015, so it just was out there, and no one had any idea about this case. But basically, what it what came it, what it, what it amounted to was there was a, a a workup training exercise going off the coast of San Diego, California, the naval operations area there, and the Carrier Strike Group, which is a whole bunch of vessels that go out and train together, was led by the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier. So the, there's a big aircraft carrier that has 
F-18 Super Hornet, jets on it, and other craft. And then there's uh, support vessels like the USS Princeton, which is a cruiser, which was out there with them. And probably for about a week in November of 2004, the Princeton was picking up these radar contacts that just um, were kind of uncorrelated. They just they weren't civilian aircraft. They couldn't figure out what they were, but they didn't really seem to pose a threat to the Princeton or the aircraft carrier. So the Navy sort of put that aside until the 14th when an air training operation was underway. And one of the senior chiefs on the Princeton um, contacted the captain and said, you know, we should take a look at one of these tracks that we have. And so he was given permission to uh, redirect one of the training exercises from the Nimitz to go look at this uh, uh, object that they had on radar. And so this was the Commander David Fravor flight, um, the Fast Eagle flight that went out there. And they flew out um, to this location where the radar um, contact was, and they didn't really see anything um, in the sky. But they did see a disturbance on the surface of the ocean at that time. Captain Fravor went down to take a look to see if he could see anything um, around this disturbance. Um, They thought perhaps it might have been an aircraft that went into the water, and that's what they were looking for. Um, But when they got a little closer, he noticed this white object that was moving around erratically above the whitewater disturbance. And that's the object that has become nicknamed the Tic Tac because it looked like this white cylindrical um, capsule-shaped craft, maybe 40 to 50 feet long, that reacted to his presence, according to him, and began to kind of come up from the surface, gaining an altitude and mirroring his own jet fighters maneuvers and after several minutes you know we're a little bit unclear how long this happened but it wasn't very long this object took off and he said it was gone across the horizon and like shooting out of a gun Um, and the other aviators kind of said that as well that that it was gone it was just they lost contact with it so that that's in a nutshell what happened and what became you know this the legendary nimitz encounters that i based that little recreation i did on youtube so and it's become very popular on YouTube, and people can uh, watch it on there. We'll, I'll ask you more specifics on how in just a minute. What were the results sure. of your work, if any, if, if uh, in terms of other media coverage or government response to the interest in your documentary? What uh, sort mm-hmm. of ripple effect did that did your work on this project have? Well, I think that you know it actually has become sort of a. Uh, a cult classic, so to speak. It went viral. We're almost up to 6 million views um, now since I released it in 2018. And, you know, obviously I didn't do a lot of marketing. That was just organic, um, you know, people going and and watching it and shows like yourself mentioning it. So a lot of people saw it and I got a lot of contacts from that. The initial version of the film um, featured Commander Fravor's story, but from that, four or five or six other Navy veterans that were present on those vessels contacted me and wanted to kind of relate what their experience was. So I got to meet and talk to all these Navy veterans, including the senior chief on the USS Princeton, Kevin Day, and one of his assistants, um, the the um, technician, Gary Voorhees, that was in the combat information in the radar center there on the ship with Kevin. And one of the first things I learned um, that had not been reported anywhere was that 
people came aboard the ship after this and took some of the radar recordings. So Gary um, explained this to me. He didn't think it was anything special. I said, wait a second. Can you explain that again? And he said that he was in charge of recording the the Aegis Spy-1 radar. And he also had, um, you know, the authority to record the radio communications and the cooperative engagement capability, which is another radar system. So he was sort of the computer tech, and he'd hit record on all this stuff during these training ops, and he recorded all the UFO stuff that day. Soon thereafter, he said, um, people that were in plain clothes came onto the ship in helicopters and requested all these radar recordings. And in fact, they, they took the radio communications and they stood there while he erased the blank disc that were still left over to make sure that there wasn't anything he was leaving there um, that might still have recordings on it. Very startling. Um, I also heard a very similar um, report from a gentleman that contacted me from the Nimitz that was in charge of the aviation tech technology on the E-2 Hawkeye early warning aircraft. These are sort of the radar planes in the sky. And, and this gentleman said that when the plane landed that day, because there was, you know, an E-2 in the air at the time, that they would recover these data bricks or recordings from the plane that would, again, have similar recordings. And that soon thereafter, people came to his shop and retrieved these objects, these um, classified data bricks or RMCs, as he called them. And he was quite sure that the people that came were not on the ship before. He told me that he believed that they were Air Force personnel based on their flight uh, suits that they, they were wearing. So, again, this kind of goes against some of the, the initial um, reporting on the case. And it's just unusual. Again, this is sort of, you know, uh, I guess you say anecdotal stories because I don't have a lot of people that are all um, backing it up. But quite independently, Patrick on the E-2s and Gary Voorhees on the Princeton both told a similar tale. And I've heard other cases um, or other stories from people there that um, sort of correlated with that same thing. Now, why they came and took that material, how they knew about it, and where it is today, I don't know. But it, that's kind of interesting. So. so if people want to watch this documentary on YouTube, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, it's quite simple, really. If you're just on YouTube and you type the Nimitz encounters, you'll see it quite, you know, readily in the search function. And um, I would suggest there, I, the channel is called the Nimitz Encounters on YouTube. So it's pretty easy to find. Um, we're talking with David Beatty. He's the director, a filmmaker who made this documentary, which you can see on YouTube, the Nimitz Encounters. Really interesting. I've watched it and it uh, really makes you think. Let me ask you about the news this week, which everybody is talking about. This latest sighting um, at, on the USS Kearsarge. When did this happen and what happened exactly? Right. So this is a real, real recent case. And I have been following up on these Navy sightings or military sightings. Um, and the USS Kearsarge is a Navy um I guess you would call a transport dock ship, and it's sort of an amphibious ship that has a flight deck and has a big well deck underneath where they can launch an amphibious um, craft. So the Navy was out there um, in, I think it was mid-October, conducting trains with the USS or the U.S. Marine Corps, um, and the Navy and the Marine Corps conduct these training operations that are kind of like an amphibious 
craft um, marine expeditionary training where they work together when they're going to deploy overseas and they they start um, with basic training um, they're firing guns on the deck of the ship they're um, conducting um, you know uh, raiding the shore um, off of cherry point cherry point north carolina conducting you know amphibious landing training and uh, air air training and so on so they were out there in october of 2021 and um, and I'll just back up that um, the reason I know about this, because people are like, well, why didn't we hear about this, is because really it hasn't come out except for somebody that was on the ship sort of leaked this out. And I was contacted by a senior officer from the Marine Corps that's retired now that just wanted to relate this to me. He asked me if I was aware of this, and I, I hadn't. So I kind of uh, did an interview with that gent, and he uh, described the, the, what, what happened. So going back to the cure sergeants out there in October, on the deck of the ship, um, they would sometimes park these um, all-terrain vehicles that the Marine Corps uses for air, uh, air defense, and they're called um, El Mattis. It's it's sort of a Polaris Razor type ATV, a four by four, you know, vehicle, and it has a radar mounted on it, and it has some other um, instrumentation, and they've been using these vehicles as um, counter drone or counter, you know, anti uh, air type uh, equipment. So the Marines that were on the ship were manning this truck on the deck, and you know they were training. They were um, standing watch there at night on one of these occasions, and they began observing these two in- interesting lights that were following the ship. So they tried to um, make contact or find out what these two lights were. And they said that they were probably about a half mile behind the ship and roughly uh, 200 feet in the air. And the description was they were probably about the size of an automobile uh, based on the observations. So these Marines thought that this must be some type of training evolution that since that's what they're doing out there, that they were being tested by the Navy perhaps or the Marine Corps. So they fired up the vehicle. They tried to get a radar track on these two objects, and they couldn't get a radar track. And they looked through their optics, like thermal optics that they would have with them, and the same thing. They couldn't see the the objects through the thermal camera. But when they looked with their eyes, they could. So they started just recording regular old video. Um, and I'm not certain if it was a camera on the truck or they were just using their you know, cell phones or something, but they did, they were um, able to record video of the objects. So over the course of several nights of this happening, um, they went up the chain of command and they tried to figure out, you know, is this drones that we own that's part of a training uh, mission and we're just trying to uh, verify that that's what this is. We were unable to, you know, get a radar lock on them or disrupt them at all. Um, and, and they were said, they, the, the Marines and the Navy said, no, these are not ours. You know, th- this is not our aircraft. We're unsure of what you're looking at. Um, and one other point was, you know, the vehicle, the air, air defense vehicle on the deck does have a um, anti-drone capability in a um, electronic weapons platform that is used for most likely taking out conventional drones, that it would um, jam the control channels of these drones and 
make them, you know, disrupt their flights. I am not certain if they tried to do that, but I imagine that they probably did. And um, that would be an interesting question for those Marines. Um, did it have any effect? Um, so, in, in, you know, as this case kind of evolved, I learned that the Marines and the Navy did file a UAP report um, since there's this mechanism now where military service units can um, file a report and then send in these reports. And I was told that they did, in this case, they actually did complete a UAP report and they sent that along with this video um, describing the event and these, you know, to this day, as far as I know, these unknown objects that they were observing. And it, it's a little bit troubling, you know, that you have some type of vehicle that's uh, uh, tracking with and following a warship like that, that close. So, Oh, a- absolutely. A couple of questions based on what you just said. One, um, you talk about this source that informed you of this. He didn't just tell you about mm-hmm. it, though. He actually provided you with photographic evidence, right? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, what I was told that excuse me, he said that there was video evidence, but because of the channels that are available now with the military, I am pretty sure that those reports are classified immediately. So um, as far as the press or um, researchers acquiring that video, you know, we are trying using the freedom of information to get some requests out there to the Navy and to the Marines, seeing if we can get copies of the video. I have not received the response on that since it was uh, filed just recently, but there is so video the, uh, um, according to the source. So, oh, uh, when I read this, re- read about this sighting in the Sun, and you were quoted as as being the person that this information was given to, I could have mm-hmm. sworn I saw a photograph in that article in the Sun, which was also in the New York Post. Was that a recreation, or was that something else, or am I misremembering? Is yeah, that the Mandela I think effect? so. You know, I, a lot of a lot of these papers and articles will create an artistic rendition of what they I thought see. it looked like. And I did see that uh, picture of a ship with two white lights, you know, but um, I'm pretty sure that was just an artistic representation. I see. Okay, well, it goes to show my own naivete. I'm glad that I glad <laughs> that I asked you the question. Um, th- there was, and we've seen this for many years with both commercial airline pilots, naval pilots, Air Force pilots, there did seem to be this stigma about what reporting first, what we used to call UFOs, Mm -hmm. what we now call UAPs. Is that stigma gone now because of this new manner in which UAPs are reported to the military? No, I don't think it's gone at all. I mean, um, in talking to pilots, um, which I have talked to, you know, I hear over and over that they say that they all see this stuff and they none of them report it. And even in this case with the USS Kearsarge, I, I saw stigma in action where I was told that the person that was on that ship didn't want anyone to know about this and didn't want – I don't think that that person really wanted any attention brought to it because of the stigma – You know, for for people that are in the military that perhaps are retiring and they're hoping to go into um, commercial aviation or other important jobs, I think that, you know, having this on your record is sort of like it could be in the military career suicide, for instance, to be the guy that canceled the training operation because you saw light in the sky. So Mm. there's a 
a reluctance, I think, to report this up the chain of command if, if you know, the objects are not actually doing um, aggressive um, actions toward the vessel. In, in, in most of these cases that I've covered, these objects that they see just seem to be kind of observing like they're almost conducting surveillance, which leads me to, you know, put out there that could this be adversarial technology that is somehow. Right. That was my next question. Right. Right. So, I mean, there, there's been a lot of evidence presented that, uh, for instance, in 2019 in the Southern California area, they had similar encounters with these what I would call drone-like objects, or as the logbooks state, UAS, unmanned aerial systems, or UAV, unmanned aerial vehicles. That's how they were logging these things. And the Navy did conduct an investigation, which involved um, the Coast Guard as well, examining nearby, um, say, foreign-flagged cargo and tankers that were in the shipping lanes, and trying to see if there was any possibility that these drones, these alleged drones, had been launched from these cargo vessels as sort of surveillance craft, maybe operated by, for instance, China. Um, so that has the possibility of that type of behavior has been raised. It's just a little concerning if it's, you know, a hundred miles off our homeland, you know, like in our training um, area. So, so uh, again, um, I won't keep you, and I hope you'll come back in the future. Obviously, this is probably an impossible question for you to answer, but let me go ahead and ask you anyway. What do you think these objects are? It sounds like you don't believe, based on what the Navy told the people that observed this, these objects on the mm -hmm. Kearsarge, that these are our own government. Could this potentially be another government, or could this mm -hmm. be something otherworldly? What's your best guess about mm -hmm. what these objects are? Well, you know, the descriptions that I've heard vary. The Nimitz encounter, you know, if you look at the video that I did, you can see that there's descriptions of maneuverability and flight characteristics that seem to defy conventional um, aircraft. You know, no flight surfaces, no lifting surfaces or engines um, were present then. And some of the radar tracks, um, the descriptions are uh, quite extraordinary. Then if you come fast forward to the 2019 and the, you know, the Kearsarge in 2021, I didn't read any kind of, you know, super um, extraordinary flight characteristics. The, the Marines on the deck did report that the, these objects were sort of doing these strange, um, they described them as, um, I forget what was the term, um, shackle turns. And I looked that up. And shackle turn is a military um, aviation term where the plane on the left goes and replaces the position of the um, aircraft on the um, right, and the one on the right goes to the left. So they just cross each other in the middle, reversing position. And they said that the objects were doing that. But, you know, that doesn't preclude some type of um, drone. Um, most aircraft couldn't um, go slow enough to actually match the performance of what these guys were saying. That, ship was going like 20 knots or something. So these objects were pacing the ship at 20 knots and most aircraft would have to go faster than that. But a drone, on the other hand, fits in that description. The fact that these guys might've been a hundred miles off the coast or so, you know, you know, what are drones doing out there if these are not military drones that are being operated by our, us? 
So that leaves the possibility that they're a foreign adversary. You know, until we mm-hmm. rule that out, um, that has to be on the table. Now, you know, UAP are real, and the the decades and decades long reports of um, you know mass sightings of UAP or unexplained aerial you know unidentified aerial phenomena go back you know you know into antiquity almost. So. I, I do believe in the reality of that. I think that they're unknown. I don't kind of jump jump to the conclusion sure. that it's ET or, or the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but I don't know. I, I think that they're real. I don't know that there's an answer. And, I, and again, I don't know what the, the, the Navy encounters are. Mm. Last question, and I uh, appreciate you being so generous with your time. Do want to encourage everybody to check out your documentary, The Nimitz Encounters. They could just search it on the YouTube. In fact, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. People could check it out right there, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, let me ask you this, though. We got some other interesting news this week about a newly released Pentagon report that said some witnesses who reported UFO sightings also experienced injuries, including radiation burns, brain problems, damaged nerves, even one instance of an unexpected pregnancy. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the story. What's your initial take on a story like that? Well, it's true that there were these investigations, and um, the the Times reported that $22 million was spent, um, you know, for this program. And part of that um, part of that program actually involved a Las Vegas company called Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Space Studies, um, called like BASS, we just say. So um, multi-millionaire, billionaire um, entrepreneur Robert Bigelow had secured this contract for the initial one was for $10 million. And they began um, releasing and conducting these uh, uh, scientific studies. So they were as part of the contract for that. One of these research studies was examining the physical effects of um, close proximity to these, you know, UAPs, and they were looking at historical cases. And you know, indeed, it is true that in you know, if you look in the past, you can find um, cases where people came into proximity with these objects and then had physical effects. For instance, um, burns that might be similar to um, ionizing radiation burns and other uh, physical effects. So I think that's the paper that you're referring to, part of like uh, one of these papers called the Defense Information Research um, Documents. Uh, David, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. I really enjoyed the sure. conversation. I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah, I'm always up to talk about this subject. I mean, I probably spend an inordinate amount of time talking about it, but hey, anytime. Same here. If anybody wants to comment on uh, any portion of my conversation with David Beatty, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.